Awesome. I'll send that to him later on. Very cool. Well, this morning we are finishing off our series that we've been doing on David, a man after God's own heart. Have you enjoyed it? And, uh, you know, like me, I hope that, you know, this has been a great time of revelation and inspiration for you. I know that it has for me. I've quite enjoyed not just uh, personally studying David to, you know, get us on track, um, but also hearing from Pastor Mark and Pastor Brett and uh, just just unpacking as a church who David is. Uh, some of the key highlights for me when Pastor Mark kicked us off, we talked about David the worshiper. And the key thing for me was when uh, Pastor Mark said that when we worship, the fullness of God rests upon us. To me, that just blew my mind that when I worship God, the fullness of who He is, His, his provision, His healing, His power, all those things are on my life. I just loved that. You know, then we looked at David the shepherd and we looked at how David became great because of his place of preparation. And then we looked at Jesus being the good shepherd and, and, and looked at how, you know, his sheep follow his voice. And then Pastor Brett very beautifully took probably the hardest subject of all, David uh, the outcast. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, in, in, in uh, that, you know, I love the idea of, you know, I am determined by how I react when I'm in the valley of life, <laughs> you know, uh, how I react de- de- determines who I am. That's what I got out of that one. And then last week, Pastor Mark did David the warrior, uh, not warrior as in like, oh no, you know, but David the warrior. And uh, that was just fantastic. If you didn't hear that message, get it on podcast. You can on iTunes, whatever, on, on the website. Um, I learned that David was not the underdog. I just thought that was brilliant. David was not the underdog. We think that David and Goliath is this little guy versus this big guy. I just loved that, how Pastor Mark unpacked that. This morning, I want us to finish off the series looking at David as king. David as king. And there's four things that I want us to just keep us on track today, uh, because who knows, um, a disorganized preacher is not fun to listen to. And so I've got four things just to keep us on track this morning. The first thing is this, I want us to look at the king and the cross. Uh, sorry, the king, and the, uh, the king and his crown, sorry. The king and his crown. Then I want to look at the king and his cross. I want to look at that. Then I want to look at the king and I. I'm not going to do the dance, but we're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at the king has one more move. So the four things, the king and his crown, the king and his cross, the king and I, and the king has one more move. Let's pray. Jesus, help. Amen. Second Samuel, I'm going to have it on the screen. If you want to get it, you can. Second Samuel, uh, verses 7, 12 to 13 says this. This is our foundational scripture this morning. For when you die, (laughs) great start, isn't it? (laughs) For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build the house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his throne forever. Here we have God speaking to David, revealing to him, but also continuing the Old Testament narrative of one day, this Jesus coming into earth, being the Messiah, being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the man who has prophesied throughout the Old Testament narrative. We have God here speaking to David, reaffirming his master plan. David is an intriguing character. Uh, You know, the king and his crown, looking at David the king this morning. He's an intriguing person. We first find David in Scripture. He's first revealed to us as this 
forgotten son of a sheep farmer. He's anointed king, but he's been forgotten. And, and he's anointed king and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, things happen. And uh, uh, we see that uh, these things happen in his life. He's, an, he's anointed. Uh, we see him come into the incumbent king's court. You know, there was a king when David was anointed. Uh, but now David has anointed this new king. He comes into the court of the incumbent king. And this guy, King Saul, doesn't like David because he's a bit jealous of David. And so he sends his, himself and his army to hunt David down to try and kill the guy. Saul eventually himself dies on the battlefield. And this David becomes king. And he's now king of Israel. It's during this time that David is king that we see both the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. When David is king, at the same time he becomes an archetype of Christ, but also an image of us. At times David shows us what it means to be a reflection of God, but then at other times what it means uh, at, 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 at other times, sorry, shows us our own human frailty and our own human desire and tendency toward evil and injustice. David, at the same time, while he's king, shows us who God is and who we are without God. And so David is both this great reflection of God and a great reflection of evil and injustice. In the Jewish, the Christian, and the Islamic tradition, David is regarded as, if not, one of the great kings of all time. Certainly in Jewish uh, uh, teaching and Christian teaching, uh, we believe that he was the greatest king you know, that, the, that the Jews ever had, you know, if not ever. Um, you know, he was regarded as a great man, arguably the greatest king. The writer of Hebrews puts David in the same uh, context as the great men and women of faith in the great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews. David, on more than one occasion, is called a man after God's own heart. Yet along with these great accolades, David does some pretty stupid things. He's regarded as this great man, this great king, but David does some pretty uh, horrendous things. We know that he uh, committed adultery. He, he, he cheated on his wives. <laughs> right? Must have been a busy man, amen? <laughs> He, he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then, you know, she got pregnant so he goes and kills the husband. You know, who's done that lately? You know, that was rhetorical. Uh, pretty, some pretty bad things. David, God says, don't take a census. David blatantly disobeys God and takes a census. David went to unnecessary war, you know, killing innocent people. He goes to unnecessary War. David certainly didn't win father of the year. He wasn't such a great dad. David is a story of ourselves. Humanity plagued with evil and unjust desire. Yet despite all of the guy's shortcomings and sin, he's regarded as great and God seems to like him. My question is this, why? Why does God like this guy? He's got all this mess, probably more than what I've made in my life, yet God seems to like him. Why? What is it about David? In spite of his weakness, he becomes great. 
that although he has great sin, he is set up as a man of faith. Regardless of his mess, God likes him. And then if God likes him, despite of his mess, does God like me regardless of mine? They're my questions this morning. And I think to answer that last question, does God like me regardless of my mess, the, I think the answer is yes, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But let's just look at David this morning. What is it about David that God likes? And I think uh, I have the answer in a sentence. Uh, David ultimately saw his purpose to bring a little bit of heaven down to earth. Ultimately, that's who David saw himself to be, that despite he had this weakness and in spite of his mess, deep down, he really wanted to please God. Deep down, he really wanted heaven to come to earth. You know, there's three things that I think David did that, you know, I guess caused God to like David or, or maybe better put, showed us what David really was about. The first thing was this, that David showed mercy. You know, um, he, he, he could have killed Saul. There was a chance for him to kill Saul when Saul was hunting him down, but David didn't. And then when Saul died, usually what would happen is whoever got the throne, you would kill all the incumbent's family so that they couldn't rise up against you. But David didn't kill the family and said he blessed them. And so David, more often than not, right, more often than not, showed mercy. The second thing was David admitted when he was wrong. He easily forgave himself and he easily forgave other people. David admitted when he was wrong, when he had committed adultery. You know, uh, the prophet Nathan, I think it was, uh, confronted David, and the Bible says that David repented straight away. You know, he was sorry. He, he was quick to ask for God's forgiveness. He was quick to forgive himself, you know. Uh, he was vulnerable to those who followed him. He didn't live a life where he set up this wall, you know, where people couldn't know the real David. But, you know, with these mighty men, with these people, with the country, you know, he, he was vulnerable with those around him you know and that made uh, that, that gave him that character to, to forgive easy the third thing was that David trusted God you know uh, last week Pastor Mark shared that thought of David when he confronted Goliath and he said mate you come against me with sword and spear I come in the name of the Lord of the armies of Israel you know David always spoke out in faith and he always trusted God constantly whenever the nation was going through a tough period David would give offerings and he would trust that God would do something great through him. I think it's these three things that set him apart from his mistakes. Mercy, forgiveness, and trust. Because deep down, that's who David was. Mercy, forgiveness, and trust. And I think these three things is what heaven desires. You know, God certainly is a merciful and gracious God. You know, God certainly forgave us. You know, God has certainly got a character that we can trust. These three things heaven seems to be, and David seemed to want to pull heaven down. You know, Acts 13, 22, Luke writes this, you know, God removed Saul, replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, you know, I found favor with David, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. You know, and so if heaven is about mercy and grace and forgiveness, and, and, and uh, what was the last one? Trust, that's it. <laughs> Trust, right? If that's what heaven is, and you know, David obviously was trying to pull that down because even God said, this guy, he's after those same things that I desire. And so David, with his crown, despite his obvious flaws, loved God and allowed himself to be humbled and forgiven 
and replicate that. It's almost like he became an, in, an incarnation of God's heart. And so it was through this process, I guess, the line of David, you know, was blessed with that same blessing that, you know, this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords would come through that line, you know, and that the, the Jewish nation would be this blessing to all nations, you know, and this uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes onto the scene. And so now we see Jesus coming into the story and he begins fulfilling what scripture was alluding to back thousands of years ago about this person with this messianic ambition coming onto the scene. You know, Jesus comes in and, uh, you, you know, um, uh, uh, you know uh, fulfills, I guess, that, that prophecy that this king of kings would come to the line of David. In Matthew 1, you can read the genealogy of Jesus. You know, you can read this from Jesus. Uh, I think it goes probably all back to, to, to Adam. I think it does in, in Matthew. Certainly, you can see David. You can see the line of Judah. Jesus, uh, the, the public the public start calling Jesus the son of David. You know, so now there's this public affirmation that this guy, Jesus, is this uh, person from the line of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, or otherwise known as the city of David. I think it's Micah 3, uh, I think it is, you know, that, that, that says, you know, Bethlehem, Ephraim, you know, uh, this Messiah, this King of Kings will come through the line of Judah and be born. You know, he will be the Messiah. And so Jesus begins fulfilling all of these things. And so it seems to be lining up uh, Jesus to be credited with this coming Messiah. But instead of a king coming with a crown of power, the king comes with the crown of a cross. The king comes with a cross. He comes with not with a, cro not with a crown of power, but with a cross to sacrifice, a cross of sacrifice, and a cross of service. You know, the purpose of the crown was to rule, Yeah. That was the purpose of the crown. The purpose of the cross was to liberate. The purpose of the cross was to make slaves free. In fact, that is the foundation of Christianity. The foundation of Christianity is to make slaves free. That's the foundation of Christianity. You know, it's the idea that evil and injustice will be destroyed because of inner change happening in our life. That's what the foundation of Christianity is about. It's about the cross representing slaves being made free. Once I was a slave to evil, once I was a slave to injustice, we call that sin. Jesus comes and he now gives us this inner revolution, this inner revival where now I'm not a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to evil and injustice. I think so often, maybe subconsciously, I don't know, you tell me, but I think so often, we preach that the cross is about getting to heaven. I just think that's wrong. Certainly when Jesus comes onto the scene, no one ever said, oh, Jesus is here. Great, now we can get to heaven. No one said that. In fact, when Jesus ever, whenever Jesus walked onto the scene, they said, great, Jesus is here. Now we can overthrow Rome. <laughs> you know, they were about this political revolution. The other thing that people said when Jesus walked in, they said, great, Jesus is here. Hey, can you heal me? Can you raise my dead relative to life? Whenever Jesus walked into any situation, no one was, uh, cool, I can get out of hell now, or cool, I can get to heaven now. They were more interested in being liberated from evil and injustice. And so we find the foundations of Christianity, first and foremost, Jesus with his cross coming to liberate 
slaves. Everything he did was to liberate the thinking and actions of a community so that they could be free from the bondage of evil and unjust desire. That's why Jesus came. Getting to heaven is just a great perk, right? But the first thing is to liberate slaves from evil and injustice, which then makes me ask this question. How does that relate then to our existence? Am I to live a life seeking to find my own salvation and a happy conscience? Or is there something more? Because if life was just about getting to heaven, then what's the point of the 80 years I'm going to be here on earth? What's the point of that? If salvation is just getting to heaven, then what's, why would I just trudge through evil and injustice? What's the point of, this, of, 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 of the time that I'm going to be here on earth? I think there's something more. Can we just go a little bit deep this morning? Is that all right? Can we have a bit of fun? Can I share a, a revelation? Okay, so I'm going to anyway. So tell me, where's the first time that we hear of God in the Bible? Genesis 1.1, yeah, absolutely. In the beginning, God, right? He's the fourth letter. Yeah, I was right, right? In the beginning, God. So we find God in Scripture as creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find God as this creator. We don't know where he is. He's somewhere, but nonetheless, he's creator. In the beginning, God. God was somewhere. God's somewhere. Thomas Kao writes a book called The Gift of the Jews. And in it, he says that for the first time in recorded human history... God speaks to a guy by the name of Abram. You know the story. You know, uh, remove yourself from your father's household, go to a land that I'll show you. God then says to Abram, Abram, look up at the stars. Look at the stars. Try and count them if you can. No, you can't count them, but look at Count them if you can. This is your destiny. This is how many descendants that you're going to have. And so God points Abram to the stars. And so God goes from being somewhere to up there. God goes from being somewhere to up there. There's this one time, this guy named Moses, the Bible says that he's in the backside of the desert, tending sheep. And it says that this one time there was this tree on fire, but Moses looked at the tree and the tree wasn't being consumed by the fire. And so he, he walked up to this burning bush and as he got closer, this voice spoke out of this bush. Moses, you know, this is holy ground. And so Moses has this epiphany, this revelation. He experiences for the first time God going from somewhere to up there to down here. And so now God is down here. There's almost like an evolution of God. It's almost like being up there wasn't enough. And so God had to come down. And so Moses has this experience of God down here. But it wasn't enough. God just didn't want to be down here. He wanted to be with his people. And so in Exodus 33, 11, uh, it says that Moses would meet in the tent of meeting and he would speak to God face to face as one speaks to a friend. And so God goes from being somewhere to up there to down here to in a tent. And now God's in a tent. Now he can move with these people. You know, the Israelite people, they were very nomadic society and so they'll constantly move. And he dad's gone camping with their family before. Yeah, who knows? It's annoying to constantly unpack and pack up tents. <laughs> who knows that that is an annoying job. And so the Israelites constantly have to unpack this tent, set it up, unpack it, set it up, unpack it, set it up. And so they have this idea, what if we just put God in a box, a nice box, 
but in a box nonetheless that's easy to maneuver and carry. And so God goes from being somewhere to up there to down here to in a tent to in a box. And now they can move God wherever. So the presence of God is always with the Israelite people. You know, but God is God. We need to make that box spectacular. You know, we need to give God glory and honor. So let's not just put God in this box. Let's make a huge box for God. Let's line it with gold. Let's get the best wood. Let's get, and so they put God in a temple. And so God goes from being somewhere to up there to down here to in a tent to in a box and now he's in a temple. And now there's something spectacular for God to be in. You know, the Bible says that when people came and visited, you know, uh, the Jews, that they would be in awe you know, by the building that their God was in. You know, even just the building, even the Jews are saying, look how good our God is, look at this thing. And so God goes from being somewhere to up there to down here to in a tent to in a box to in a temple. It wasn't enough for God though. Who knows, you can't put God in a box no matter how big it is, yeah? So God has this idea, I don't just wanna be in a box, I wanna actually walk around amongst my people. And so Jesus Christ comes onto the scene God comes and begins walking with these people. God goes from being somewhere to up there to down here, to in a tent, to in a box, to in a temple, and now he's walking with these people. But even Jesus, it wasn't enough. You know, 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says this, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that God, He was somewhere. He was up there. He came down here. He was in a tent. He was in a box. He was in a temple. He was walking around among us. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God now lives in you, that God is in you. He's gone from somewhere to up there to down here to in a tent, in a box, in a temple, walking around us, and now He's in us. I'm here to tell you this morning, church, you know, that God, it seems to me that God is more interested in us coming down here to us than us even going up to Him. The whole idea is not just to get to heaven, but the whole idea of Christianity is to get the presence of God in us so that now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is in here and we're now His disciples. We're now the representation of what it is to destroy evil and injustice in the world. The wholeness of who God is now lives in you. You are now that little God walking around your community. You have that presence. You have the spirit of who he is. You know, I just think God is more interested in us replacing injustice and evil in our society, yeah, and bringing in righteousness and peace. I tell you what, our community needs a holy nation to rise up, not just a bunch of people sitting in church thanking God that they're going to go to heaven one day, but they need a people who are going to come out of this building and be that beacon of hope, be light, be salt, and show us what it is to have a good marriage, show our community what it is to raise good kids, show our community what it is to have good strong godly morals domestic violence has to go substance abuse has to go social degeneration has to go and it goes not by political picketing hear me it goes by me having my own personal inward revival and then this person sees that and they have their own revival and then that person, and, and then this person has a revival because of this person. And then all of a sudden our community seems to have had this revival. 
because people are walking out their life changing they're making disciples that's what discipleship is all about church it's not about just preaching a religion Jesus did not come here to start a religion he came here to show us that evil and injustice can be replaced I no longer have to be a slave to evil and injustice Here's the thing though, right? Every king in his crown had an enemy, yeah? Every king had an enemy. Even the king in his cross had an enemy. Even the king and I, even we have an enemy. And the enemy wants to distract you. He wants to keep you distracted. Because see, you are a reflection of God. That's who you are, yeah? Bible says that we're created in his image. You are a reflection and representation of God. You're the vehicle that God wants to use to destroy evil and injustice. (laughs) Who's nervous right now, right? We are the vehicle that God wants, because He lives in us now, we are the vehicle that God wants to use to destroy evil or to, to replace evil and injustice. And so you have an enemy that will try anything to distract you. He will try anything to make your ministry impotent. He will, make, he, he will do anything to, to, to make you powerless. He will do anything to make you fearful of man. He will do anything he absolutely can to make you not live out who you are called to be. John 10.10 10 says that the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said mine is to give life and life to its fullest, but the thief is to steal, kill, and destroy. Notice what the first one is, steal. Notice Satan didn't come just to kill us. He didn't come to just destroy your family. The first thing he does is he steals. He steals from you. The first, before he can destroy you, before he can kill your marriage, before he can, you know, destroy your family unit, you know, before he can destroy faith, he steals. He steals your joy. He steals hope. He steals faith. He steals dreams. He steals desire. A marriage just doesn't die. The first thing is stolen is laughter. That's the first thing that's stolen, yeah? You know, you don't just fall into substance abuse. The first thing stolen is wisdom. Self-harm doesn't just happen. The first thing stolen is hope, right? Things are stolen and then we're on the path of being destroyed. Then we're on that path of destruction. The enemy's desire is to steal from us. That's his desire. He wants to steal our kids. You know, I'm glad for Pastor Adam and our team. It's gone off notes here. You know, the last month we've seen 13 kids baptized in the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? You know, we've seen kids give their life to Jesus. How cool is that? My prayer is this, that the, that, that the enemy would be controlled to not steal the seed. Yeah? Amen? So the enemy wants to steal from you. Before he can destroy anything in, in, in our kids' lives, he means to steal from them. How important is, that our, is our job as parents then, yeah? To keep the enemy at bay. He's not going to leave. He's always there. That's his purpose. His purpose is to flog stuff. Right? It's to steal from us. In 1955, Billy Graham shared this story. And it was these two men walking through this art gallery. And they came across this painting. And they looked at it, and then the first guy was like, cool, cool painting, you know, uh, let's go. And 
The second man, though, um, he said, you know what, you go ahead. I want to check out this painting. Um, this painting was called Checkmate. And the second man, he was a chess champion. And he said, you know, you go along. I want to study this painting. And so this man looks at this painting. got it on the screen here for you. And the guy in green, uh, the painter, was representing uh, uh, the devil, the enemy. And he's playing against, what you know, this very perplexed, Man, you know, in, in, in the painting, we see that this man, he, he's thinking hard. It seems like he's beaten, you know, the guy in green, you know, staring him down. You know, he, his expression is, I've got you, you know, and, and once this man's beaten, it seems like that, you know, Satan has this guy's soul. And so that's the crux of this picture. It's called Checkmate. And so this international chess champion begins studying the board and he begins looking at all the pieces in his mind. He begins moving all the pieces and, and steps back and moving and, and looking and studying and moving the pieces and then in this art gallery he takes a step back and he goes oh, oh, oh and his mate comes back and says what's up? what's wrong? and he said where's the painter? we need to contact the painter he's like why? he said because the painter's wrong the painter's wrong <laughs> this isn't checkmate he begins screaming out, the king has one more move. <laughs> he begins screaming out, this is wrong. The king has one more move. I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that the king always has one more move. The king lives in you and he's for you and he likes you. Despite the mess that we might go through in life, the king always has one more move. You might have gone to the doctor this week and he said, you know what, checkmate. I'm here to tell you this morning that the king has has one more move. You know, the enemy, it might seem like the enemy has stolen your joy. And he said, checkmate. I'm here to tell you this morning that the king has one more move. It might seem like that the enemy has stolen your husband. I'm here to tell you this morning that the king has one more move. You know, there's always a second option with Jesus. Jesus, he used to be somewhere up there, but each time he moved closer to where we are and now he lives in us, there just seemed to be that the king always had one one more move. <laughs> Feeling good. The king always has one more move. He didn't stay somewhere. He didn't stay up there. But now he lives in us. And so once there was this king with his crown. And he tried to bring heaven down but struggled to overcome his weak humanity. And so God in his mercy and graciousness, instead of us trying to always bring him down, God just comes down. And he goes from being somewhere to up there, to down here, to in a tent, to in a box, to in a temple, to walking around us, and now he lives in us. And now it's no longer the king in his crown. It's no longer the king in his cross. It's now the king and I. The foundation of Christianity all rests on this right now, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, His Spirit lives in you. Which means this, that you have in you the power and authority to overcome evil and injustice in your own life, but to also replicate that in your community. The purpose of the cross is to alleviate injustice and to replace evil with righteousness. You have 
that right now living inside of you. If we can get the band up, that'd be awesome. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard about this God that went from being somewhere to living in you. Maybe for the first time you've heard about this God that rules with sacrifice and rules with service. Maybe for the first time you're hearing about this God that wants to replace those things in your life that you hate about yourself. Maybe for the first time you're hearing about Jesus who came not just to start a religion but came to replace came to replace the injustices that you've gone through in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've gone through some terrible injustices. I'm here to tell you that Jesus has come to replace them with peace. He's not come to make you forget. He's actually come to turn those things into weapons against the enemy. He's come to replace the evil that was done in your life and replace it with hope, replace it with wholeness. If you're here this morning and you're saying, Pastor Tim, I want to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before. I would love to just pray with you. You know, the Bible says, uh, you know, just believe in your heart and just confess, which means this, just live a life that overcomes evil and injustice. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's not about, you know, uh, some form of rite of passage. It's It's not a religion. Like what I said, it's a, it's a replacement of evil and injustice. And so to accept Jesus, say yes to Jesus, is to say, you know what, I'm going to turn from my old self and I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you're here this morning, you're saying, Pastor Tim, let's just maybe close all of our eyes this morning. Because although Jesus did come for community, he did also come for individuals. If you're here this morning, you're saying, Pastor Tim, can you please, you know, just, uh, I'm saying yes to Jesus. That's you this morning. If you just give me a quick wave, I just want to acknowledge you and just pray for you this morning. Saying, Pastor Tim, count me in that prayer. I want to say yes to Jesus this morning. Anyone here today? Second, uh, I want to, as I was praying this morning for the service, I just felt to pray for two things. Uh, one of them is you feel like the enemy has stolen your dream. You know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, there was this dream that you had, you know, for some type of ministry, you know, whether, whatever it was, you know, you had this dream to do good things for God, great things for God, but you feel like, you look back and you go, man, that was stolen from me, that dream It feels like it's been stolen. I want to pray for you this morning. And then uh, the second thing that I want to pray for is just saying, Pastor Tim, fear. I I just, there's just fear. I want to do good things. I want to do things that alleviate evil and injustice in my community, but I'm just scared. I'm scared of myself and I'm scared of other people. So I want to pray for those two things this morning. Actually, just while eyes are closed, if you feel that you know you're in one of those two things, can you just give just put your hand up, just give me a quick wave. You feel like a dream has been stolen. You feel like fear is holding you back. 
This is what we're going to do. We're going to stand up. We're going to just worship God. Let's just, yeah, let's stand up this morning. We're going to worship God. And what I want to do, if you're here, if you put your hand up, maybe you didn't, and you're saying, Pastor Tim, I feel like either my dream has been stolen or I'm scared. I'm going to get our pastoral team here this morning. We just want to pray for you. We want to lay hands on you this morning and just speak hope. Because let me tell you, the king has one more move, church. The king has one more move. Your dream, it might seem like it's been stolen, but let me tell you, the Bible says that God breathed breath into dead bones. And he can make dead dreams come back alive. Let me tell you this morning that, you know, uh, once there was a man named Peter and he denied Christ three times. One of them was to a little girl. (laughs) He was scared of a little girl. Yet a few chapters onward, he preaches and thousands of people give their life to Jesus because he broke out of the fear of man. Let me tell you, the king always has one more move. So as we worship this morning, if you put your hand up, maybe you didn't, please come out. Let us pray for you. Let us believe that the king will have one more move in your life. Amen.